This is part three of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Column number 11, Loss to Pests. And um, in year one, and this is one of the rare times he has a number, in year one it says 17% of crop. And in year eight, it says 2% of crop. And then, of course, year four is something in between. Mm -hmm. I think most, I'm, I'm trying to think like, yeah, most of the rest of the chart is going to be, you know, year one is one thing, year eight is is a opposite thing, and year four is something in between. Which, and maybe that was the case if I go through all of these across the board, with the exception of the first one, which was um, income. Mm-hmm. That it that it did take a. It, what's in between is not in between. What's in between was less. It was the lowest thing in the transition. Okay, lost to pests. Um, I would say that uh, an important thing is I love how Fukuoka does it, and and that it's uh, basically validating this and verifying this, and showing that it's like, yeah, I have a lot more uh, insects and arachnids and creepy crawlies and animals and bugs and all that stuff. There's tons more of that now Mm -hmm. than there is in my neighbor's land, and yet I uh, lose less crop to pests than they do. Yes. So, um, uh, because, you know, he's working with nature instead of against nature. Uh, But, all right. Anything else to add to that one? Uh, other than the fact that, obviously, when you're creating any kind of monoculture, you're creating a pest buffet. When the right pest shows up, it has an endless buffet, and it and all of its children and grandchildren um, have a big party. And um, so, it, again, it's, it's the resilience of the system has been broken because you have a monoculture. I think another thing is that when you're, like, let's say um, – Colorado potato beetle comes back. Mm-hmm. It um, it breeds exponentially faster than the Colorado potato beetle, um, uh, the things that eat Colorado potato beetle. Yes, and it so, does. And I think the one other thing to point out, of course, is that for those people who haven't thought about it this way before, is that um, nutrient deficient food is um, pest food. Uh, basically, when plants don't have rich soil, uh, they they don't have all the nutrients they need. They cannot produce all of the defensive phytochemicals to fight off the pests, and therefore they basically become a huge attractant for pests. So as um, I think it was Dan Kittredge from the Bio-Nutrient Food Association put it, he said, the thing is that when you have all these pests showing up, in eating all of your crops, what they're telling you is you're not growing human food, you're growing insect food. 
not bad. I mean, I, I do think that uh, a lot of the uh, crops we're growing, so for example, we just talked about Colorado potato beetle, so a potato plant, um, when it's a good, healthy, strong, vibrant plant, mm-hmm. it tends to not be bothered by Colorado potato beetle. But when the plant yes. is weak and, and dying and or doing poorly, somehow Mother Nature and the guise of Colorado potato beetles comes down and, you know, like, like no no problem. I'm going to take this plant out so something That's else right. can grow here. I'm going to fix your problem with poor potatoes. I'm going to take it right out of here. What's interesting is that the beetles are some of the ones with the most sophisticated digestive systems among the insects. They're one of the last of the insects to be sort of discouraged by plant nutrients. In other words, if you get to the point where your plants are um, – uh, resistant to beetles, and you're doing you're doing pretty good. You know, they're one of the last insect uh, pests that will probably go out as you increase the nutrient density of your plant. So then, let's say that uh, the primary predator for those Colorado potato beetles is a type of bird. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put poisons out, then your Colorado potato beetles will die. The birds will eat those dead bugs or possibly the dying bugs. Yep. Then the birds themselves will die, um, mm-hmm. and it will take a lot longer to bring back those bird populations than it will to take bring back the um, Colorado potato beetle populations. Oh, yeah. So if, if you do not treat for Colorado potato beetles the next year, then, yeah, you'll be overrun with them because the natural predators are gone. Yes. So... Uh, creates a little bit of a of an addiction to that toxin. Uh, now, of course, you know I think that maybe you might want to go a few years of growing something else while you're transitioning away mm-hmm. from that. But uh, and of course, uh, build more habitat for those birds to live. And with permaculture systems, we tend to be like, okay, we've well, just installed a brand new permaculture system, and it's a total failure. And <laughs> and it's like, yes, well, we could have told you that. Um, that's, that's normal and, uh, because it's going to take a while for all the systems to level out and, and reach kind of a status quo. Um, so here at my place with those giant hugelkultur beds, mm-hmm. which you've seen, uh, I think the first year, uh, everything that we tried to grow on there was wiped out by, uh, uh, deer and rabbits. Um, and then the, uh, we built a paddock around a lot of it. And so in the second year, everything was wiped out by chipmunks. Uh, and then, uh, things that ate chipmunks moved in and things started to flourish. And, uh, uh, now we're seeing a lot of stuff getting wiped out by insects. But, uh, we, with each year that passes, we are getting much more growth, much more growth. This year, uh, it's more jungly than it has ever been. Mm-hmm. And uh, I expect that, you know, five years from now, it'll be a rather ultimate jungle. But <laughs> in the meantime, we have to go through these fluctuations while the ecosystem balances itself out to absorb this this new source of magnificent life this giant hugelkultur bed. And I would say, can we reframe that? Instead of saying it was a failure, let's just say it was such a raging success that you won't, that the ecosystem is, is rebalancing so quickly and so effectively that you won't get 
um, optimal yields out of it for a number of years while the, while the ecosystem is rebalancing itself. But once the ecosystem is rebalanced, then maintenance costs go way down and yields go way up. Yeah, yeah, it's going to take time. Um, I, I think that's a good way of, of putting it. I, I do think, though, that uh, some people uh, are rather impatient <laughs> and I believe that permaculture is gardening plus patience. And it's kind of like, I think that the reward is spectacular. Mm-hmm. But if you uh, are if, impatient, you will never <laughs> get the reward. If, if you can get past the fast food mindset. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Column number 12 is a fascinating one. Employment mm-hmm. on farm. Okay, so this is where we're replacing petroleum with people. Mm-hmm. And I got to say that, uh, again, um, rough start. Uh, I mean, after all, people, people can be fucking nuts, whereas petroleum is very predictable. Yep. And, and uh and so That's why engineers love it. <laughs> so uh, I I kind of feel like um it's it I can understand the desire to stick with a petroleum based system because the petroleum is just so reliable and predictable mm-hmm. you know what it's going to do. Um, your, you can, you know, like if something in your equipment breaks down, that is only about a hundred times more repairable than something similar breaking down in the human being. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the, the, the next thing is as much like what we were just talking about, uh, with loss to pests. Um, and that is that. Uh, it's going to take years until you can get to that point where the human beings are well aligned with what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in my case, I think that uh, it's rather public that there are several entities where it did not work out, and um, they went to say so uh, on the mighty Internet. And so it's like, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. They they are not charmed by the direction I'm going in, and they they actually authentically advocated for something that is away, in my opinion, away from permaculture towards something that's more like year one in this image. And I kind of feel like no, I'm I'm trying to go towards year eight, and so human beings. Uh, and so we had to. Um, uh, do the turnover thing. And uh, uh, now I feel like things are really, you know, it's gotten better every year. Mm-hmm. And and now it's much better than it was back then. But I, I could understand how most people are going to want to not go through that drama-infested growth phase. Um and uh, especially if it leads to something as public as what I've gone through. But I, I, I think most permies are not going to choose to be as public as I am, which is unfortunate. And um, it, it kind of comes back to the conversation we were having earlier about conversations that happen when you and I are not there 
and I hope for those conversations to end well, even though those people, you know, the, the people supporting permaculture may not be as well prepared for that conversation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this chart, column number 12, in year one, it shows one person. In year eight, it's on top of that pedestal. There's a lot of people. I think that they're trying to show, I'm going to interpret this as one person in year one and possibly eight people in year eight. Mm-hmm. I mean, they couldn't, he couldn't fit the actual eight little stick figures on top of that. Right. But the, but the bar is possibly eight times higher in year eight than it is in year one. So I think, you know, one of the things that comes to mind on this, if, if nobody's seen it, I think somewhere or another, uh, Joel Salatin's discussion of stacking um, different enterprises on the same land is out there uh, in his presentation. Mm-hmm. And there's some really good thought in that, how he's done it uh, in order to maximize the productivity and minimize the drama. So I won't try to unpack that too much, but I would say if you're interested in that concept, uh, go see if you can find that. It's a really interesting conversation of something that's really worked for him. And even if you don't want to do exactly the same thing, the kind of thinking that he's doing um, might sort of inspire some thinking uh, in the part of somebody who's listening to this. Do you know if he's changed the – he used to use the word fiefdom for that. I don't know. And so I, I kind of felt like fiefdom was, like, not a great – word no. right there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm hoping he'll someday change it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it would be layers like each like like you could have a, a person that's all about honeybees and so they've got hives yes. throughout the land yep. while another person is going to be focused on a variety of different crops which happen to have blooms that mm-hmm. are going to benefit from uh, all the honeybees and are uh, uh, going to uh uh, simultaneously provide the nectar to the honeybees to make the honey, and mm-hmm. uh, and then at this simultaneously there's somebody else whose whose layered business enterprise is going to be lumber, and so they're going to be focusing on trees here and there in areas that are not a good place for the person who's of course raising chickens, which is looking for something very flat so they can move the pens around, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So there's like the same land is facilitating possibly 40 or 50 different business enterprises that are mutually beneficial to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that is an excellent model. A polyculture of enterprises. Yes. Ooh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, column number 13, quality of food. And this is probably one of my favorites, uh, mm-hmm. although you know, almost all of them are my favorites. But, okay, I'm, I'm favoriting this one more um, for reasons. Year one, of course, is pathetic. Year eight is, of course, magnificent. And year four is something in between. I, I believe that with permaculture, the quality of food is going to go way beyond organic. So I kind of feel like mm-hmm. organic is about trying to remove most of the toxins from food yes that conventional has in it and then permaculture specifically rich soil and polyculture is going to be about adding nutrient 
back into the food, making the food yes. far more magnificent. Much more nutrient dense. In ways that I believe, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a bold claim right now, and and I I hold it up in front of you so that you can shoot holes in it. I'm gonna say that polyculture food, food raised in a polyculture and rich aged soil, has the potential to eliminate 90% of all pharmaceuticals. All right, there yeah. you go. Yeah, take, take your shot. Um, I, I wish I could argue with that, but, but actually, I don't wish I could argue. I think that's actually fairly fairly true. Um, I would point out something very interesting that's been popping up um, in the, the recent research over the last couple of years in quorum sensing and the soil microorganisms. Um, that um, you know, anybody, people who have done polyculture work in growing systems realized that something very interesting happens when you get to a certain critical number of species uh, cohabitating in soil. Something mysterious happens. And now we're starting to figure out, and I won't go into all the science in this, but I'll just say that um, there's a lot of microorganisms that have uh, quorum sensing mechanisms such that when certain populations get to a certain level, they change their behavior and they start to fully they start to, to fully express their genetic potential. Um, and what it seems is there's what's called cross-species quorum sensing. And when you get to a certain critical number of different plant species, all of whom who are feeding the soil microorganisms in their own way, that you get to the number of ex- root exudates hitting a, a, a certain level of, of diversity and... Um, Quorum sensing mechanisms start to turn on, and cross-species uh, interrelationships between microflora uh, in the soil start to turn on, and you get this uh, magic transformation almost. And it does it does differ in different soil types, different biomes, but you, you, it usually it's not just two or three different types of plants. It's usually at least say six to eight different types of plants in the polyculture, and when you hit that, something, you know, goes on with the quorum sensing and the microorganisms, and then bang, they start to do things that you never saw before. So when this occurs, what we start seeing is that um, the, the, the symbiotic relationship between the micro um, or the, the microbiome in the soil and in the plants really starts to get very, very strong, and therefore the plants are able to get all the nutrients that they need much more easily. Therefore, they will express their full potential of phytochemicals. And it is when those phytochemicals are fully expressed that that food becomes not just nutrient-dense, but phytochemical-dense. And it is, the, it is the combination, from all the research I'm reading, between nutrient density and full phytochemical expression that when we eat that gives our bodies what it needs in order for our immune systems to function properly and not to overreact, but to, um, to react to the environment in a, in a much better balanced way. And so autoimmune diseases start to become less, and overall health and quality of life starts to go up. So I think that's the long answer to, yes, Paul, I think you're right.
<laughs> well, I can't hear that enough, you know. So. <laughs> uh, the uh, next column is human and environmental health with the uh, – this is column number 14. Mm-hmm. And for scenario A, uh, contemporary Western agriculture, uh, the little bar graph is very short, and it's uh, got a little symbol of a skull and crossbones on it. Mm-hmm. And year eight, uh, it's got a, a, a very tall chart there showing magnificence, and uh, it's got an image of a uh, a woman with a lot of hair. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in year four, it's something in between. It's got a balding dude there. Yep. But he's not at school and crossbones, so that's an improvement. Yep. <laughs> All right, uh, human and environmental health. I I agree with the analysis here, and then there's then there's finally, and I suppose this is going to be relative and subjective, but column fifteen, the last column, life quality, in year one, small and pathetic, and mm-hmm. in year eight, large and magnificent, and year four, something in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with this analysis. I mean. I I want to live in a, a home that uh, uh, has a plethora of uh, an abundance of food, more more than I could eat, and uh, it has magnificent gardens and uh, uh, you know lots of diversity, and is comfortable all year and. Uh, uh, and I'm surrounded by like-minded people. And so my neighbors or even the people that I, maybe I share this home with are like-minded people, and every day is a lovely, joyous day, um, as opposed to with contemporary agriculture, it's a lot of hard work mm-hmm. to, you know, it's hand-to-mouth. Uh, you know, the wolves are at the door every day. It's hard, and if anything should go wrong, you're fucked. Um, yep. And you better make sure you vote for the right people, because if you don't, you can be destroyed quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the permaculture system, it kind of doesn't matter who you vote for. Um, sure, it might a little bit, but you don't really have to worry about it that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I would also say if you have any uh, if you have any doubts about the uh, the quality of life difference, I would say, you know, go out and try sitting for a couple of hours in an industrial soybean field, and then try sitting for a couple of hours in a properly permacultured landscape and see what the quality of life difference is. Although I might suggest a hazmat suit if you want to sit for very long in a um, in industrial soybean farm uh, field. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree with your analysis. Um, Mr. Booker, that that is it. That's we we that's two pages out of the big black book. In fact, my favorite two pages. Hmm. Um, I I think I think we've covered it. Is there anything else that you wish to add about these two pages? No, I think we've uh, I think we've covered it. Okay. Um, now, for Chapter 1, there is one bit that's left, but we are over our, our time allotment for the day. 
Section 1.3, Permaculture and Landscape and Society. Do you want, do you think that we could do it in a few minutes and we should go for it? Or do you think we should leave it for another day? Ooh, let me look at my notes here. Um, wow. I think, I think I could just, you know, I know, Paul, you said you didn't have that much to say on this one. I could probably just make a couple of comments on it. Maybe we could just round out Chapter 1. Oh, wouldn't Ooh. that be something? That would be, yes. So... You know, the couple of things that, that hit me, and I think this is, I mean, there's there's a lot in here we could definitely pull out. Um, a couple of things that really hit me. Number one is the very first sentence in this particular um, section. Um, Mollison points out that, you know, permaculture is really about beneficial design science and that basically he says that, you know, that th- these skills can be added to any other um basically set, set of human endeavors, um, and um, I kind of agree with that. It's kind of where I'm going. It's like not only can you use it for the for the farming and for the, the you know, natural building and all that sort of stuff, but, you know, I agree that the whole, the, the mindset and the design strategies behind permaculture uh, are more broadly applicable beyond just the agricultural um, uh, you know, sort of Melu that he's been discussing so so far, and that's part of where I'm trying to take it, you know, myself today. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is like you know, as I've been working with the system, I'm teaching with professionals. I've kind of talked about permaculture and then what I call ecoculture, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, what you might think of as tending the wild spaces. That is, we use permaculture. Um, in our cultivated spaces, and then we use ecoculture in our non-human-centric spaces. And it's interesting because I had almost forgotten that Mollison put this in here in this particular section, is he actually makes a distinction, although he doesn't call them by those two names. I've kind of come up with a name for the ecoculture, meaning you know, the human interactions with wild spaces to help and for us to act as keystone species in wild spaces. Instead of basically just saying, okay, those are wild spaces, we don't do anything with them. We see that indigenous people groups all over the world historically did interact with wild spaces. They didn't cultivate it. They didn't, you know, um, in the same way that we would cult- we would think of cultivating uh, spaces that we are doing horticultural or other kinds of, you know, pseudo-agricultural things with, or that we're turning into cities or urban areas, per- peri-urban areas or so forth. But... Um, you know, what Mollison is pointing out here is that, um, you know, the, the strategies that he is going to look at in these books are uh, in what he's calling permaculture is culture, that is cultivation of, um, of spaces that we have decided are going to focus on human-centric yields. That's kind of how he defines it. Um, these yield that we're going to manage this space actively to attempt to create an abundance of human-centric yields, and those yields will also benefit the wild lands nearby. Now, when we go in and do ecoculture, that is when we are acting as a keystone species that's helping to regenerate wild landscapes, we are looking at you know, managing and helping the biodiversity and the the productivity of those wild landscapes primarily, 
so that they can keep all of I hate the term uh, uh, ecosystem services, but basically that's where people have, have taken it today. They've sort of like um, reduced it down to this idea of ecosystem services, but I look at it and go, without those, quote, ecosystem services, we wouldn't be alive. They're producing and providing a huge number of underlying services in terms of soil, air, water, you know, excess fertility, um, biomass, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we interact with those spaces, we are helping to maintain that support system that supports all life on Earth, including us, and also has secondary benefits to our permacultured systems. So I, I think there's an important idea that he's unpacking here that there has to be an appropriate balance of land use and habitat maintenance that um, we have to create a place for all species uh, uh, to exist and um, honor the right of all species to exist because that's important for us to exist and to have the quality of life that we want as well. Um, so that's another idea he unpacks here that I think uh, resonates with me. I think it's important. Um, and just that idea of, you know, when we say a permaculture space versus a wild space, it really is like what yields are we managing for, right? Um, he, he makes a, a quote. One of his quotes says, our own survival de- uh, demands that we preserve all existing species and allow them a place to live. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's, uh, that I can kind of agree with. And um, so I'm thinking if there's anything else here. Um, yeah. Well, while you're looking for your anything else, I want to pop in here really quick and point out that mm-hmm. I, I uploaded some videos years ago that were uh, showing some Native American food system stuff. And mm-hmm. I errantly stated that the way that Native Americans did their agricultural systems is similar to permaculture. And uh, I, I was corrected. And I agree with how I was corrected, and um, mm-hmm. it's actually the other way around. Permaculture is like Native American agriculture systems. So yes, yeah. Well, I would I would go beyond that and just basically say many indigenous cultures, um, because a not all. It's, it's, there is a huge diversity in indigenous cultures, and so you, it, there's no universal statement. But number two, you would see that working with nature instead of against nature tended to be an indigenous practice on multiple continents. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I usually, instead of saying Native American peoples, I, usually, I oftentimes say many indigenous peoples or many indigenous cultures because it is – well, I just explained it. You know, it's 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 uh, something that we see all over the place, but it's not universal, so we can't say all. Fair enough. And yeah. at the same time, I think that the the big difference is is that rather than like I'm going to rip out all the trees, I'm going to rip out all the life in this area to make a 40 acre flat spot for my tractor to plant into this soil, which is currently amazing because I just destroyed all, I, I, you know, all these plants that were here, all of this, you know, uh, food forest that was here, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've ripped out all the plants, but all the soil that they were in is still here, and now it's it's even tilled, so it's it's got all these great advantages, and and so my first year's crop is going to be amazing. Um, rather than that, the 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 system that is that permaculture is like is uh, something where allow allow that to remain and you'll find food plants growing there already, clearly those food plants do well in this spot, and mm-hmm. then you simply encourage more of the, the plants that you want, and you discourage the plants that you don't want for mm-hmm. that patch. So rather than, like, I'm going to rip everything out, and there's no potatoes growing here, but that's what I'm going to fucking grow here. And so I've got to add some amendments to the soil to make it so that potatoes will do acceptably well here. And since they, I didn't quite do a good job of that, Colorado potato beetles moving in, and I'm going to poison all of them, etc. that instead I'm going to just nudge things a little bit to grow more. So I really, I, I made, I took this amazing video of a camas prairie in um, Port Townsend. Washington, mm-hmm. and uh, so this guy, Forrest Schomer, was maintaining it the way that Native Americans had maintained it like 200 years ago, and it was just loaded with camas and a bunch of other plants, and, and what he was doing was, is he was going through and trying to discourage the plants that were to be discouraged and the, encouraging the ones that were to be encouraged. And it was a rich, rich polyculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took very little effort, but, of course, it was very manual effort. And uh, it was not flat. It was sloped. Um, and, and of course, I happened to be there to take this video when it was in bloom and beautiful. And I foolishly lost all the video. Um, and, uh, you know, about five other times I've come close to going back there to, to try to get that video on those days again. But I, I think uh, I think that's gone. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the thing I'm trying to say is, is that um, rather than making Mother Nature your personal bitch, which is modern agriculture, is to get in there and develop a romantic relationship with nature so that nature and humans benefit. Yes. Yeah. I, I kind of, I guess my last thought would be that this, uh, there's a, a couple paragraphs here in the very middle of 1.3 and he kind of, he's kind of coming towards his whole wrap up and I would encourage everybody to sit down and read this because he makes, he builds an argument through this section, but he he's basically says that he thinks that we have two responsibilities Right, he says. First, we have to get our own house and gardens in order, uh, so that um, it supports us. And he says our second responsibility is to limit. This is here we go. He's going to be controversial again. Limit our population on Earth so that we ourselves don't become what he calls the final plague. he says, both of the, and we'll quote here for a second, both these duties are intimately connected as stable regions create stable populations. If we do not get our cities, homes, and gardens in order so that they feed and shelter us, we must lay waste to all other natural systems. So he's basically saying he thinks we have a choice. If we don't basically 
get our own you know, things in order that the only other alternative will be to continue to degrade all of the ecosystems to support us to the point where we destroy them. Right. He says, thus, truly responsible conservationists have gardens which support their food needs and are working to reduce their own energy needs to a modest consumption or to what can be supplied by local wind, water, forest, or solar power resources. And um, then the last thing I'll, I'll quote him on is this. Um, is it is hypocrisy to pretend to save forests, yet to buy daily newspapers and package foods, to preserve native plants, yet rely on agrochemical production for food, and to adopt a diet which calls for broad-scale food production. So, you know, there it is. uh, You marked the same parts that I marked, but I have one other part (laughs) that I marked that, that you didn't already hit. And uh-huh. um, that's that's a little bit uh, a little bit up from what you just quoted on page seven. Mm-hmm. Um, we are fast approaching the point where we need refuges for all global life forms, as mm-hmm. well as regional, national, or state parks for indigenous forms of plants and animals. While we see our local flora and fauna as native. We may also logically see all life as native to Earth. While we try to preserve systems that are still local and diverse, we should also build new or recombinant ecologies from global resources, especially in order to stabilize degraded lands. Yes. Yeah, I guess, and we've had this conversation about, because I know that we could unpack another two hours worth of discussion about native plants versus, you know, non-native plants and so forth. And I think, um, I feel like know, I've covered that well enough in past yeah, podcasts. Absolutely. And so I would just kind of say that I, I tend to, my, my rule of thumb has always been, if there is a native plant that works for what I want to do, I will tend to favor it because oftentimes it has a lot of pre-existing beneficial interconnections with other elements in the landscape. Mm -hmm. But if there are not natives that will, you know, provide the the ecosystem function that's necessary, then I have no problem of, as Mollison is saying, you know, looking at recombinant um, uh, guilds and so forth in order to get the functionality back because we have degraded. So, that's sort of my personal approach to that. I guess I would throw in to sort of like right on the back of, I guess, Paul, what you've already said in depth about you working with non-native plants. I, I want to take that and, and throw something at you, uh, which is something that I have not shared in my stuff about natives versus non-natives. And uh, uh, I, I kind of allude to it a little bit, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick some, some numbers, and I'm going to see how close your numbers might be to my numbers. And, and I'm going to say like, if a person grows a half-acre garden of food, that that preserves two acres of native habitat. And by native habitat, I mean, like, basically that's two acres that a farmer is not going to grow food on or something equivalent. So I think, I, I guess what I'm proposing is, is a half-acre permaculture garden preserves two acres of habitat, which includes native plants and fauna. 
So can I presume that our permaculture garden might have some other things stacked on it, such as maybe bees and chickens or other kinds of things? A permaculture, a permaculture paradise, a half acre of Aha. permaculture paradise, yes, which which is designed dominantly for food systems for human beings. Mm-hmm. Yep, and may or may not include native plants. I, mm-hmm. I, in fact, they probably would include native. Oh yeah, we don't have to. But its dominant function, its dominant feature, mm-hmm. is food systems. Yeah. So I'm saying a half acre of permaculture paradise makes it so that two acres can be left alone now, which which would probably include a, a great deal of native plants. I would say that number is low. Tell me, because I. I want you to make I mean, up your own number. Uh, uh, boy, you know me. I'm an engineer. I want to run the numbers. I'm like, no, no. Uh, I'm really. It's really. It's really difficult for me as an engineer to like just throw out numbers that I haven't had time to calculate. You but are I, an just, expert, and you have the ability to make estimates on the fly. I do, and, but but you know any good engineer will 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 first push back and say <laughs> I have to calculate. That way, when they make an estimate, and it turns out not to be exactly right. They can say I told you I needed to calculate, um, and so it's just me being a, an engineer for thirty years uh, that that pushes it back. Which I guess what I'm thinking about, which you said it'd be bigger, your numbers would be bigger. Which I bigger? think it's going to be bigger, and I think is that which you which start one? There's two numbers. Oh, the, the 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 amount of um, the amount of of habitat saved, I think, would be larger than two acres. Okay. Um, All right. And the reason for that is that um, if you look at the inefficiencies, there's there's inefficiencies in like vegetable production, in, in, you know, in industrial. But then there is like, hmm, we're gonna you're gonna have eggs. Well, those eggs. Required that we have a chicken, you know, a battery chicken farm, and that means we have to go off and grow all the grains that we're going to feed them, right? And right. so we destroy habitat for the factory uh, chicken uh, farm, right? The, the right. big, huge Purdue or Tyson chicken houses, and we destroy habitat for all the the the, the places we have to grow all the grain, and we have factories to um, to to mill the chicken food and to send it all over the creation and so on and so forth. By the time you start adding all that stuff up, right, um, you start winding up with a huge amount of industrial overhead that has been created merely to sustain the food production system. So every bit of that is native habitat that's being plowed under. Yeah. So to me, it's like, yeah, maybe the, like, growing in the field ratio is half an acre to two acres, but then you have to also, maybe it's in that ballpark, maybe two, two and a half, you know, it, it depends, right, where you are in the world and how it's grown and so forth. So, you know, it, maybe it's a four-to-one ratio like you're estimating, but then you got all this other stuff on top of it, right? Um, how many acres were plowed under to make the Walmart parking lot, you know? Um, I mean, we could keep on looking at it like that because we, you know, if I don't have to have a Walmart to go get to buy my, you know, my hothouse tomatoes that were grown in California in under, you know, and, and shipped across through, through warehouses, but instead I walk out into my own backyard and pick it, I mean, how much infrastructure just went away if everybody's doing that? So 
Yeah, my my uh, my my gut instinct is that um, it's probably uh, a good deal larger than that. Um, but boy, it would be it would be a very complicated thing to, to to figure it out exactly how much it is. But it would be a lot. So I I mean it, it is a massive and complicated thing. And uh, at the same time, in order to get forward velocity on these topics. I I feel like you know I gotta pick a number. I gotta. Mm-hmm. It, it helps to to give traction because because the people that are passionate about uh, native plants, and of course one of the things I say is it turns out they're not. It's not so much that they're passionate about native plants as much as they are. They've got a powerful death wish for non-native plants, <laughs> um, and so it's like. But but those people are like I I want. Not only do they want to take their half acre and not do a permaculture paradise, and they want to do strictly native plants, and they will kill anything that's non-native. And then they turn around, and the and then of course their their new garden, which is only native plants, they don't eat anything out of it. They right. It's not. It doesn't grow the the, the There's not a native pizza plant that grows the pizza that they still eat. So they go to the store and they buy that pizza and they continue to buy all their food from these other food systems, which have a massive environmental impact. But if we're going to Mm -hmm. focus just on native plants, I'm going to say that the person that turns their half acre into a permaculture paradise while focusing on food systems, they do more for native plants far more for native plants than the person that takes that same half acre and grows purely native plants. That part I'm sure you agree with. Yes, and then it's just I a matter of, like, the number. What's the function? Right. And, yeah, you're, and, and I think what I heard you say is, I'm in the right zone. You're, your whatever number you pick is going to be fairly close to two. two it's going to be bigger than two, probably, by the time I got done with all the calculations. Mm-hmm. So... You know, um, I would I would say that yeah, you're you're you. I would I would think people would have a hard time proving you wrong there if they actually ran all the numbers. I think that you would you would come up with something probably higher than two. Right. I'm my my number's a bit conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah I I feel I feel pretty strongly about that. I uh, um, I. I think that there are people that that do uh, authentically love native plants, and um, they're trying to find a very natural way to discourage the non-natives, uh, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And they'll even eat a lot of the native plants that they grow, um, and uh, it'll be a, a lovely, lovely experience. Um, and uh, uh, but I think most of our our native plant enthusiasts seem to be really all about hating the non-native plants. <laughs> so yeah, it's a yeah. it's a sad, painful thing. All right, I believe we have made it all the way through the end of chapter one. Wow! Is there anything else you want to say about chapter one? No, I think we're we're getting ready to turn the corner and go into chapter two and start talking about. Design. Whoa. All right. All right. So, um, exciting times. I, I'm going to wrap it up. If you got nothing else, um, if you like this sort of thing, 
come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about the great Bill Mollison homesteading and permaculture all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.